Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Mansi Subramaniam, the editor-in-chief at Penguin Random House, India. Mansi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Mansi, tell me, where does your love of books stem from? You know, I was kind of obsessed with stories from the very beginning. So I would start by saying that I was always looking out for a great story, even as a, as a, even as a little kid. And I was completely obsessed with it. And for the longest time, I think, I think even I thought that this meant I would someday be a writer. Um, but I realized that what I loved the most was listening to stories and reading them and hearing about other people's life experiences. And I realized that the way to channel my love of stories was to consume as many books, as much literature as possible. Well, you have so many manuscripts that come across your desk. And yet you have managed to select two Booker Prize winners, a Pulitzer Prize. You've obviously got a good nose, a good eye. What is it? How do you know that this is this is going to be one that really is going to make it? You know, I think now I I would say, if you'd asked me even five years ago or 10 years ago, I would have said instinct. But now I think something different. I think you've got to be willing to get it wrong many, many times. You've got to have like a great hunger for risk. So I feel like that is that is probably my strength as an editor that I I have a nose um, but I'm willing to get it wrong again and again and again because I know that occasionally I will get it right. I mean, you've published some authors who's, you know, who face serious intimidation and physically threatened. Do you ever say to them, look, tone things down a bit, just be more careful? I worry about everyone's safety. Like, this is a thing that keeps me up at night. I this is the thing that I never want on, like, I don't want this, this blood on my hands, you know. Um, so I do worry about the safety of, of writers who um, I think, uh, I think have faced some amount of persecution. Uh, and from, from that perspective, I, I tend to be cautious. But when it comes to what people say, I don't think it's my job to police them. I think it's my job to edit them. I think it's my job to make sure that the facts are correct. Uh, And I think it's my job to make sure that the narrative is strong and that tells a good story and that it's an important story. But I do not think it's my job to police the way they want to phrase the things they want to say. Do you believe that free speech has limits? I mean... (laughs) This is a tricky one, right? Because I think that freedom of expression kind of implies signing up for restraint. I think that if I want freedom of expression, I also volunteer to be a good citizen. I also volunteer to have restraint in the things I say. I volunteer not to spread lies, not to defame anyone. So I I want to say yes, because I think that these are things that are implied within this right to freedom of expression. But at the same time, I do think that freedom of expression is is one of those things that it is an absolute right. There's no gray area. You either have it or you don't. Like, 
you're either breathing oxygen or you're not. It, there's no gray area there. So I think I have a slightly mixed response to it. Increasingly, I go back um, when I when I want to sort of clarify something for myself. The one document I have, like I have a copy of it on my desk and I go back to it really frequently is the pen charter. I think it's beautifully worded and it talks about what freedom of expression is, why it is important, particularly for literature and how to conceive of it in the modern era. So I've been listening to the Wreath Lectures on the BBC. And this year it's the Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who is speaking on freedom of expression. And she's been criticizing what she calls an epidemic of self-censorship among young people. And I'll just quote because this I'll just quote from what she said, because it really stood out for me. She goes, we now live in broad, settled ideological tribes. We no longer need to have real discussions because our positions are already assumed based on our tribal affiliation. Our tribes demand from us a devotion to orthodoxy, and they abide not reason but faith. Many young people are growing up in this cauldron, afraid to ask questions for fear of asking the wrong questions. And so they practice an exquisite kind of self-censorship. Do you, do, you, do you worry about this? Do you believe we're in an epidemic of self-censorship? And what are we losing? What are we losing from this? This is an interesting one, right? Uh, I think the reason self-censorship often happens is it's not malintent. Um, I keep going back to Hanlon's razor, which is do not attribute to malice the thing that can be attributed to incompetence. And I do think that self-censorship is a result of gross incompetence rather than malice. And the reason I say this is because I think in a lot of societies, including India, laws can be worded so vaguely that we don't necessarily know what will pass muster and what won't. And to me, that means that if you don't know what is acceptable and what is not, you have a tendency to be extra cautious. You would rather err on the side of caution. And I think of this as a result of just ambiguity in the way some of the laws are phrased. Um, I think particularly of... Uh, in India, one of the things that uh, comes up frequently is offending religious sentiments, for example. Um, I think that that is a law that's so vaguely worded that it, you never know what is going to be offensive, particularly to the majoritarian Hindu right in India. And therefore, you want, you want, to, you want to follow the rules, and so you tend to be extra cautious. But I would honestly attribute that to incompetence, not madness. Mm -hmm. But do you worry, as she does, about the death of curiosity, the death of learning, the death of creativity through this self-censorship? Oh, yes, I do. I do. I, what, what I would love um, in the future, what I would love for the world to look like as far as the way we express ourselves is concerned, is not just a willingness to get something wrong but also willingness to be to openly change your mind about something that i fear is the thing we're losing i do fear that people especially in the age of the internet i think people think that once you say something it's sort of cast in stone and you have to 
you know, die on a hill for it. But I don't think that. I've changed my mind about a million things. Um, I've changed my taste in music. I've changed my taste in clothes. I've changed my hair hairstyle a thousand times. Of course, I'm going to change my opinions. I do think that there is a kind of intolerance that is being uh, spread in a dangerous way when it comes to the ability to get things wrong and change your mind about the way you express yourself, the things you have opinions on. So why do you feel in this day and age that books are still important and what role do they play in building a better society? Oh, I have so many answers to that question, <laughs> but, I'll, <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll stick to the one that I've, uh, I know that you and I have certainly talked about ad nauseum, which is, I think that books make us more empathetic and books help us think for ourselves. I think that especially fiction, when you read a book about someone that you know very little about, perhaps even someone that you might strongly disagree with, but you end up walking a few miles in their shoes, you understand their perspective a little bit, just a little bit more. And I love that. I love the ability to be able to get into someone's head and then later come exit that and see a little bit of where they come from. And I feel, I often think that this is one of the reasons why books are seen as dangerous, particularly by authoritarian regimes. I think that books are incredibly important because they help people think for themselves. And what what fascists and authoritarians want is for you is a world where these where things can be more black and white, where there's like tyranny is basically the absence of nuance. And they want a world where there is no nuance. They want you to be able they want to be able to tell you this person is evil, so let's murder them. And they want you to not have a perspective on that. But if you read, you're going to have a perspective on it. And I think that that's why books are so important. Well, 2022 has been a great year for literature in Asia. What do you see as the future of literature for the Global South? So 2022, I think, is going to be one of the most important years for South Asian literature in particular in the years to come. in uh, early this year, history was made when a Hindi novel translated into English for the first time won the International Booker Prize, which is the Booker Prize for translations. It's been in existence since 2016, uh, but it's never been won by any of the over 100 Indian languages in which uh, books are published. Uh, for the first time, it's, it was won this year by a Hindi novel called Ret Samadhi, which was translated into English as Tomb of Sand. The author's name is Geetanjali Shri and the translator's name is Daisy Rockwell. And it is a wonderful, wonderful novel. And just when we thought things couldn't get any better, uh, uh, later this year, a South Asian novel, a Sri Lankan novel, won the Booker Prize. This is a Sri Lankan novelist called Shehan Karunatilaka and the book was The Seven Moons of Mali Armeda. So history was made twice this year and that makes it an even more historic year. And I kind of think that this is going to be an important year for a couple of reasons. One is I feel that both of these books, they they have very little to do with each other. One is a novel about partition and the other is a novel about the Sri Lankan civil war. 
the thing that they have in common is that they're both incredibly funny novels. And one of the reasons I think that 2022 is going to be incredibly exciting for literature from South Asia in particular is because what what I think has always been glorious about the Asian languages is that sense of satire and humor and that often hasn't made it out to the West. I think great novels have been published out of out of South Asia and have received international recognition, but they haven't often always been the funny ones. And for me, the future is going to be about literature from the global South that isn't just telling one story, which is a sad story or a dystopian story. I think it's going to be great stories, fun stories. We're going to be talking more increasingly, I, I suspect, about you know, the growing middle class in these countries. I think, I suspect we're going to be talking a lot more about the the romances, the gritty crime novels, the fantasy, the sci-fi, all of that, I think is going to become more important. So we're going to exit what, to quote Adichie again, is the danger of the single story, and we're going to enter a world of multiple stories. Omansi, I love listening to you talk about books. You got me wanting to go away right now and read those two books. You must. I will, I promise. I will read them over the holidays. It's been wonderful having you here at Yale and I wish you all the best for the future. Emma, thank you so much. Thank you so much for letting me part of the, be part of the fellowship. It's been life affirming. <laughs>